0: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. It feels like forever. Yeah, it does. It's been a long time since we've seen each other and we can't even remember where that was or I can't remember where that was, but I remember chatting with you so distinctly. But anyway, hey, (laughs) what a great book, The Dressmakers of Yarandara Prison.
2: Oh, thank you. It's, um, It's a book that's very dear to my heart, I must say. It's one of those books that, well, it it wasn't the longest between idea and uh, and publication, but it was kind of in the middle. It's my middle child in terms of complexity.
0: Yeah. So what is so strikingly different about it is that it's about a group of men, male friendship, and I'm wondering whether men have to be in a prison to have that bonding. <laughs> I, I do think, though, there is that thing, you know, like it's so, certain environments have their
2: own culture you know like hospitals high schools you know prisons you know there's certain sort of you know boarding schools i'm sure isn't you know there's just a thing isn't there where you put a bunch of i'm sure universities are the same that you put a bunch of people in that sort of enclosed environment and it's sort of like a social experiment in some ways because it's so removed from the the reality of everyone else's lives but yet it is a reality in and of its own so yeah maybe you're right maybe they need to be in an enclave you know <laughs> in order to kind of bond (laughs)
0: I've got um, these two male friends. They live in San Francisco, actually, and they're besties. And uh, I'm friendly with both of them. And I often, and I'm hoping they don't listen to this podcast, but (laughs) often when I see one and he's been out with the other right, I say, oh, yes, and how was he and what's happening? So, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And I'll say, and what happened with, you know, uh, his son or something, you know. And he'll say, oh, I don't know. I didn't ask him. We didn't talk about that. (laughs) What did they talk about? What? I know football, baseball. I don't know. (laughs) Neither of them are sporty. So I mean, it's it. it, The mind boggles. I can never work it out. And I often think that male friendship. And I love seeing it. Actually, I love seeing men hang around with men and have those bonds. But I often they don't. They're not like us, are they?
2: (laughs) No. And I think sometimes as a woman, the only way you get. Any real insight into to male friendship or the functionality of male friendship is to be absent but eavesdropping. You know, I don't think. I think as soon as you inject um, yes. women into the into the situation, even if they're stone silent, the men behave completely differently
0: than they would otherwise. Yeah, I agree with that. Do you know what is really lovely about this book too? Is I don't know if there's a comparison because often these. These fiction books um, of this style are usually about women, aren't they?
2: Yeah, and and the thing is though that it it, it really this book was really tricky in the terms of so many ways because of authenticity. Yeah. and so in the first way, the it had to be authentic. Is that the the group that this is based on in the UK Fine cell work which inspired the novel. Um teachers volunteers go into prisons in the in the UK like Australia 93% of that prison population is male so for me to make it women sewing a dress in a a women's prison, isn't actually all that authentic, number one. And number two, the thing that is so wonderful about fine cell work in real life, connecting threads in the novel, is that these women are going in and and with these big, burly, tattooed, mass-murdering, you know, violent men and teaching them how, you know, needlepoint, (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sort of it is that anachronism that I think is actually what makes the idea resonate so strongly. um initially with me as the writer, but I think with uh, people who've read it already, it's like oh, it's the gentle art of sewing meets you know wentworth, I don't know, you know, so they kind of really strange juxtaposition. Mm. Tell me how much research did you do in prison? Oh tons like this may surprise you Cheryl but I've actually never been to prison and so in terms of that authenticity I needed it was a form of world building I needed to create how that structure worked and so Yes, of course. There's some, you know, correctional uh, handbooks. You can you can talk to the Department of Corrections, but you also need to get into the um, the nitty gritty of everyday life. So not just the routine of what time you have to get up, what time you get locked down. Um, it's, there's a whole PhD on comparing food in different prison systems across Australia. So you know that they have a very regimented diet in most places but then again that depends on are you on a prison farm versus you know all the women's prison out on western sydney which has a dairy well it used to have a dairy so there's there's those kind of elements to it too and like what what's in a wet pack you know what toiletries are they allowed you know who would have thought they are allowed a razor because you know if you watch enough gritty prison drama the last thing you think they'd be allowed to do is have a razor we've seen what they can do with the toothbrush so, You've kind of got to also let go of all those preconceptions about what prison's really like. And the thing that really struck me was in many ways how boring it is to be in prison. There's so little to do. Did that really strike you? It really struck me when you're listening to so with them um, when you when you read prison memoir when you read prison blog when you read for instance the men that uh, are taught stitching by fine cell work and you read their letters and their and their posts and stuff that's the thing that really comes through is the Too much time on their own to think about their own problems and to disappear into the self. So mental illness is a a really, is much higher, levels of mental illness are much higher in the prison population as are general health issues. So too much time to think also can lead to self-harming.
0: Yeah, it doesn't surprise me, though, because, you know, you're locked up from society and you're locked up from people you love and you're locked up from your social network and whatever, you know how we all have this fear. And I don't know if you have any of this, that recurring dream that may happen. And a lot of my friends have got, you know, the fear of flying or mine is prison. Oh, there you go. Yes, being locked up, losing my connection with people.
2: And it is, the connection with people is a massive issue with the prison population. I mean, it, it, everything is stacked against them, sort of, every every statistic that you read about general society is exacerbated in a, in a prison population, male or female. And so I think that in and of itself creates its own issues. If you've got mental health issues, you've obviously got um, anxiety over your, your disconnection with the people that you love and, and your and your your normal routine, you've got too much time on your hands because there isn't enough work to go around, you're in lockdown more hours of the day than you're allowed out. Is it any wonder that people have so many issues and that and this whole to me, I guess the, the thing that struck me about the teaching the sewing as well was about it really ties in with rehabilitation and like can you take someone who's gone into prison and may have a, a life history of petty crime, full crime, you know, locked up family members and then help them to turn their life around so that prison is in their past and not you know potentially in their future again so there's all those kind of different dynamics at play when you think about prison it can't just be about you know you're banged up and you've done a crime and do your time and out you go again it's sort of much more interesting in some ways just to you know hang out with them and see what what it's like.
0: I don't know if you you read about this recently, but one of the um the the fellows that stormed the Capitol um who was in prison and not allowed out on bail, he was complaining that there wasn't a vegan or a vegetarian option well, in prison you know, that is
2: actually reasonably common it's, it's um a lot of the prisoners have to buy their special dietary needs from the what's called the buyer, but the canteen. So um particularly applies to Muslim prisoners and stuff that there isn't the stock, the bog standard meal which is from all accounts is fairly unpalatable at the best of times is completely out the window for a lot of you know for members of the prison population who do have a special I don't know in Australia as well like can you have a kosher meal as well you know it's like I'm sure there's all sorts of issues that we don't think about and health issues is a very big one if you have a pre-existing medical condition and stuff like that but I think the general point is from the novel point of view is just trying to sort of Spend a lot of time in that space and trying to work out how that, how the landscape, you know, how the world building, as, as it were, of, of that prison that I've created uh, impacts on the behaviour and shapes the behaviour of the men on a daily basis. And I should I should probably point out too that this is not gritty prison drama maximum no, security breakouts. No, absolutely stuff. not. This is, this is meant the men and women in prison actually have a system where they work their way through the system as a categorised prisoner. So from A to C, just in simple terms from A to C. And so this is actually set in the C wing. So these, even though we've got mass murderers rubbing shoulders with burglars and arsonists, et cetera, um, these are the men who have, through their good behaviour and uh, you know re- self-rehabilitation, have actually earned the right to be in a, a more minimal security part of the prison. So we're not kind of, you know, we're not you know running our metal cups up and down the bars type, type prison story.
0: No. Um, so tell me, where did the idea come from? So I was, back in the, my days at the Hoopla, I, was, I used to
2: interview a lot of authors myself. And so I was preparing to interview Esther Freud, the UK writer, um, and about her new novel, Mr. Mac and Me, at the time. So this is 2014. And like I'm sure like you, I just jump into Google and, you know, go swimming around in the pond and see what's going on. And I came across an article that she wrote for The Guardian on fire and cell work. And I was like, oh, what's this? And when I opened up the file and there's all these beautiful graphics of tapestry cushions and quilts and all this stuff and she was writing about that organisation and I was just- amazed, you know, just this beautiful, the beautiful work. Like we're talking stuff that's commissioned by the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, the Queen has stuff hanging in Buckingham Palace. Elton John has stuff in his lounge room. I mean, apparently you walk into somewhere like Colfax and Fowler in, in the UK and you can buy cushions made by fine-sell work. So it's a, it's become, even in the time I've been involved with their story, which is for seven years, even in that time it's just gone from strength to strength to strength. And I'm reading this and I'm not, I'm going, wow, wow, wow. And then into my head pops this idea, what if one of the guys wanted to make his
0: daughter a wedding dress?
2: Mm. I have no idea. Nothing nothing to do with anything that they do. Just that was the thought.
0: Mm, mm. Now, you know, um, I forgot to introduce you because we just jumped right into the conversation, right? (laughs) So tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do as well as being a writer.
2: Well, yeah, mostly I'm a writer these days, which is lovely. Um, So these days I wear two hats. So the ma- main hat, well, I guess they're kind of equal at the moment, but the main hat is I'm a novelist, so I'm working on a new novel at the moment. We've got Dressmakers of Yarra Darra Prison coming out next month and I've got two adult novels behind me and a children's novel and a short story. So there's sort of that part of my life and that's sort of been... Well, I started my first novel when my son was born, and he's just turned thirteen. So I guess it's 13 years of my life. But the sort of foundation years of that were spent at the Hoopla, where I worked with Wendy Harmer and Jane Waterhouse and Carolyn Rossler and, and anyone who's old enough will remember that the, the Great House in Days of the Hoopla. Um and I worked with them from the, the very first day to the very last day. How um, long did that go for? So it was a bit over four years. Right. Yeah. And uh the formative part of that for me was learning journalism from some amazing women and also as you well know yourself uh, reviewing books every single week preparing a column you know word to word count etc etc provides so much discipline and structure but it also forces you to really think about or to really articulate what you loved or didn't love about a book and it just does by osmosis filter into your own writing it just really has a massive influence I know everyone says to writers or would-be writers you've got to read you've got to read but that's not good enough you actually have to read critically I think to get the real benefit out of it so that was sort of like that was sort of instead of going to uni and doing a master's of creative writing that was sort of my master's of creative writing so yeah That's what I do. And then when I'm not doing that, because, you know, what else do you do with your time? I run um, Storyfest down here on the south coast in New South Wales. So that's about to kick off in June. So that's another big task. (laughs) Tell me more about the festival. So Storyfest was just a gang of us down here going, well, you know, regional festivals are so much fun to go to as writers and, don't get me wrong and you know, I've done a lot of work with Sydney Writers Festival and I'll be here you know this year as well but um, it's a very different vibe to your little regional festivals and and we live in a beautiful part of the world where dairy country meets the sea it's um, so great surfing great gorgeous food scene tra la 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 and because we're a major tourism town in the summer or in the warmer months the infrastructure is already ex- pre-existing for a winter festival. So we just thought we'd give it a go, you know. And um, the first festival was in 2019. It just went off. It was just amazing. So many people. And you just realise how privileged we are in our own little writing world. So many people down here had never been to a writer's event slash festival. I was quite surprised. So they were all I had no idea what to expect and, of course, got the full-on treatment with what we would consider you know, normal. And um, they just loved it. So they went more, more, more. And we were Um, clearly planning to do that in 2020 and had the rug pulled out from under us which so we elected because we had to preserve our capital as well this becomes a big financial issue so we just said no we're not pivoting we're just going to sit on it and we'll go for 2021 so yeah we're just we're just launching ticket sales next week so we're just everyone's um, scrambling to make sure
0: all the swans are swimming across the lake. (laughs) Well good luck with that. Tell me um, about you so tell me where you grew up and and how Okay, so, yeah, I'm a Sydney gal. I'm um, Northern Beaches born and bred uh, Avalon
2: back in oh, the day wow. when it was very still nice. on septic. Yeah, not well, yes, but you've got to remember this is Avalon in the 1960s, so it was like septic tank, no guttering, everyone walked around in bare feet, you know. So even even the millionaires at Palm Beach wore scrubby old King G's and had their boat, you know, their million-dollar yacht at the end of the jetty. But it was very... Very fibro-shacky kind of Avalon. It wasn't Avalon as we now know it, but a wonderful place to grow up. And then we moved closer into into
0: the city for my dad's work when I was about nine. Do you know, when I was little, we didn't have, I lived in Glebe, right? And my parents couldn't afford holidays. So, you know, the notion of going on holidays up or down the coast was just an unknown thing to my parents. But I did have a girlfriend whose mother rented a, a caravan at Narrabeen. Narrabeen Lakes Caravan Park Yes and it was my first holiday ever to yeah. Yeah.
2: but you see at the other end of the scale like I had I was a horse rider now at the time the time when I grew up on the northern beaches the horse population on the northern beach was, was the highest in all of Sydney you'd go to places like Kirkhill Beach and they'd be tethered in the sand dunes but there were horses you know down at Avalon which is now the the footy fields and were you could ride everywhere it was amazing and um and that's what you know it was that kind of place that you, you nowadays and I used to ride my horses up and down you know between DY and Long Reef Beach you know imagine if you're trying to do that now People People be calling the rangers on you. But we used to ride all over the place. It's like, oh, we'll just jump on the horses and go there. But then at the other extreme, I had friends who were so wealthy that they, you know, they had their holiday houses down at, you know, Whale Beach, Palm Beach and all that. And they trekked all the way from, you know, Taramara or Warunga all the eastern yeah. suburbs, all the way to the far peninsula to um, <laughs> to go on holiday. So, yeah, not and quite so- the Narrabeen Caravan Park, but, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right.
0: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: So you went to primary school and, and was it an early kind of passion of yours?
2: Yes, definitely.
0: I was always
2: always in my own little world or yeah. like so like you read about authors and it's like we're all cast from the same die sometimes it's like yes we all grew up reading masses of Ena Blyton and C.S. Lewis and The Hobbit and all those kind of fantasy novels seem to you know feature quite strongly and adventure you know the famous five and all that kind of stuff and so did all of that and I also um, when I was um, early high school years I got into drama and that has probably shaped me more as a writer than. Well, or as much as a writer as the reading. I remember reading with some interest that Kate Morton majored in drama and English at uni, and I majored in English and sociology, which I think is pretty obvious from this novel. But I did drama as a as a minor as well, and I did drama all through school. I mean, my dramatic highlight of my career, Cheryl, is the I played one of the lead characters in the school play in Year 12, which was Pride and Prejudice, and yes. I was Darcy. Oh. I went to an all-girls school. She, <laughs> the drama teacher, made me cut my hair really short, which I know it's really short now, but like back in the day, I was like, oh, I felt nude, and I wore my my jotties and my. I've got photos. I've got. I really. I need to burn them. I've got my jotties on and my and my long riding boots and all that, and I spoke in a very deep voice. <laughs> And it really helped though because I was such a slack-ass in high school that I was, my mother now knows this. So I'm not giving away seconds. I basically wagged most of year 12. I was so over school. And uh, the only reason I scraped through my English exam was because I
0: could quote from Pride and Prejudice and that was one of the set texts. Right. Well, <laughs> Shame, it's... shame, shame on me. But, <laughs> but acting, it's... I think is another, well, I mean, it is another form of storytelling, isn't it? So, yeah,
2: yeah. No. It really helps you when, you've set, when you're building scenes as well. I think like when I'm writing the scene. Sometimes I just write all dialogue to start with and then I backfill and go, well, what are they doing while they're talking? You know, and as we know, we're always doing something else other than just talking. You know, we might be chopping the the vegetables for dinner, we might be ironing a shirt, we might be doing a multitude of things. And I think drama really teaches you that stagecraft of setting that scene. And it is, you know, the, the, the sort of the classic thing with Chekhov, isn't it? If the, the gun's on the mantelpiece in Act one, 1, scene 1, it has to be fired before the end of the play. And it is, you do get a very strong sense of that
0: when you study drama mm. um, at mm. school and uni and stuff. Tell me about getting your first book published. What was it <laughs> and how did that play out? So my first
2: novel was The Fence, Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the that was the first one published, it wasn't the first one written.
0: Very Sorry, often that's the same story. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: But it was just that they swapped they swapped them around because they thought Christina was pretty heavy duty, which it is, the making of Christina. Um, and they felt that the fence as a satire was probably going to get me a better audience than Christina would. And who was I just to, to argue? How would I know? it never been published. But the funny thing is that the fence. Came out of a real neighbourhood dispute with between us and the next door neighbours. That um, my husband was absolutely content to add fuel to the fire, and I, who hate confrontation, was like, just, just stop, stop. And I was getting so stressed and distressed about this mounting tensions that suddenly the like light, light bulb moments. Yet again, I went, oh, I could just put It into a novel, and so that's kind of where the fence came from. So it was actually very cathartic <laughs> for me. Uh, and not
0: all of it, not all of it's true, I might add. <laughs> was it your first attempt at writing fiction, or had you been yes, writing? Yes, everything I've ever written has been published, and that
2: only occurred oh, wow. to me. Wow, that only occurred to me quite recently how lucky I am that I have never written a thing that's been rejected, which is, probably means the next thing will be. So it's okay. But yeah. Um, yeah, I got a two book deal on the basis of the making of Christina. Then I... Uh, how did, did you I get did the deal? It's all through my agent. And then um, she she's a great believer in the two book deal. So she, I had the, the strength of the making of Christina, which was a completed novel and a synopsis of the fence. And she just pitched them as a, you know, a two-book deal thing. And um, you don't realise when it, you've never been published like how big a deal some things are. Do you know what I mean? Like you just go, oh, great, I've got a two-book deal. That's fantastic. You don't realise until some time later when you've gone through harder times that you kind of go, oh, gosh, how lucky was I to have made, to have got a two-book deal? So uh, I, mean, I think... I mean,
0: are talking about it like it's an everyday occurrence, but for a lot of people it's really
2: tough. Well, that's what I mean. Like like you, right. do, you don't have any sense of... Because if you've never been published, and someone says, "Oh, you're going to get a two-book deal, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that," you just go, "Oh, okay, oh, okay," because all you're thinking is like, "Oh my God, I'm going to get published." Um, you're not thinking, "Is this normal? Is this what happens with everyone?" and you know and. You know, equally with the dressmakers of Yarrinderra Prison, you know that had massive structural rewrites. Um, the the catch cry from my um my wonderful, wonderful editor was more heart, more humour. You know, sort of became the running joke. It's like more heart, more humour. It's like kill me now. So you know, but people see the finished product, and you read a book, and it might take you what eight hours to read that book. It doesn't give you any indication of the the you know the years of agony, pain, or the months of agony, pain that that the hundreds of thousands of words that may have been discarded in the process, the, you know, the agonising over exactly the right motif, you know, tra la 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 it's a fascinating, uh, to me, writing is like a, a two-act play. There's the creative, you know, the creation of the work and then there's this part, which I love equally. It's then you go, well, what's the reaction to that? You know, same as the play, isn't it? You know, you, you write the play, you, you rehearse the play, you do the dress rehearsal. Opening night, is it going to be a, you know, a blockbuster success or is it just going to be a flop and it goes to off-Broadway in one week? And it's just, it's a similar it's a similar thing you know like and like, it's pretty disheartening when every time you you jump on and see what the best selling books are in Australia and you go well how do I compete with Bluey's Easter egg hunt like
0: <laughs> Do you know what I think with writers I think you know it I mean it's and you're probably right it's the same with theatre and film and everything else but you put your heart and soul into it for years and years very often you know you give up a lot to write it's not lucrative in any way shape or form. No. Um, no, and then you put your baby out there and then everyone has an opinion. Yes, yeah. and and, I mean, and You should be doing my job. I'm not as exposed to that.
2: <laughs> but, you see, you have to get comfortable with it too. Like I remember somebody on Goodreads gave Christina a one-star rating and I was like, oh. Okay, and so I had to read what she said. because "I hated this character. She really should have got off and done something, kind of thing." And I was like, "And I just cracked up laughing." I went, "Yeah, you're right. That's kind of the point, isn't it? That she she doesn't do anything." <laughs> but I know that some people weep into their pillow if they get a bad review or somebody doesn't like your stuff. But you've got to you've got to kind of a you've got to develop a thicker skin. But but b if your overall rating on something or you know the overall. Opinion is that it's a four star out of five, even though I think star ratings are a bit a little bit cringeworthy. Then who cares what the twenty percent that didn't like it thinks? If you've you've managed to win over eighty percent of the audience, then you're doing really really well. Like, mm-hmm. and, and it, I think it can get really tricky when it's when it gets into genre fiction as well, because you can really attract like there can be really hardcore as an audience. And um.
0: well, and also, and I think very often the reviewers, what are they reviewing about? Like when, you know, at Better Reading, we are talking to the genre audience Mm. and that's a totally different conversation. And also too, I say to people very often like you, I mean, I've been in this industry for so long and no one has ever asked me what not to read.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I also get really annoyed with all the snob- snobbery too. Like, mm. I don't go to dinner every night and go, I want to have Wagyu beef yes. with roasted potatoes and char grilled broccoli, and that's all I want for dinner every single night. Thank you very much. Like, mm. who reads like that? I don't read like that. I mean, sometimes, yeah, you might pick up a book and it's "Mm, it's not reading. Sometimes the reason the book's not resonating with you isn't the book. It's because you're just not in the mood for that book or you've just come off the back of a particular other book that you're kind of still in cloud nine or you're still sort of punch drunk from. And anything after that's going to really struggle. And maybe you're better off just not reading for a week (laughs) until you've recovered your equanimity. So, yeah, I'm not really, every time anything gets really literary, snobbery, I start to sort of have to bite my tongue or roll my eyes because it's just like get real people. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's I all love- right to have a dirty habit, you know, like to I love literary classics, but I also like to go and buy a chocolate paddle pop, you know, like <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah, no, absolutely. I mean we read so widely, but you're reading for the moment. I'm you're not gonna compare Murakami with a Rachel Johns, right?
2: You know, no, but equally totally enjoyable books. So exactly. I've, my, I've just finished reading Love Objects,
0: Emily uh, McBeyer's
2: new book. And oh my God. Hey, I just can my I tell
0: you how lucky I am? I've just come back from a Pilates class with her. Coincidentally, <laughs> coincidentally, you walked into my Pilates class maybe two years ago and said, Oh, Cheryl Arkell. And I was like, what? Uh, Emily McGuire. And I think we annoy our instructor because we talk nonstop. And yeah, I you would. Like, You'd be like, so what are you reading? Oh, yeah, oh we talk nonstop. Lucky mm. it's not yoga. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky. But isn't that just the best book? It's beautiful. Oh, my God. It is like, I'm sorry,
2: everyone, but you have yeah. to go. And apart from anything else, you have to pick it up and hold that divine cover in your hands mm. before you open it it's up. tactile. It's just- it's just so many wonderful things to talk about with that book. But but that's a classic example. Like Emily is a person who is not a literary snob, despite the fact that many would consider her, you know, a literary writer because you know she's got all these wonderful accolades. But when you open the page of any of her books, it's nitty and gritty and it's like it's it's not always pretty. Like she mm. just writes stuff that is so visceral and so, you know, and she doesn't, she doesn't ever shy away from the fact that she, you know, she comes from that working class in the city suburb kind of environment and that's what it is and she wears it loud and proud. And with that, therefore, you get some wonderful insight into her work. Sorry, I'm not not here to, to plug Emily, but, you know, it is a great book. I'm also Susan Johnson, so that's really good too.
0: <laughs> hey, Emily and I were just talking about that this morning. Have you read it yet? No, I haven't. She said to okay. Cheryl, jump onto Susan Johnson. Yeah, said, yeah, do. yeah, yeah, do. Yeah, okay. do. I'm, I'm about 100 pages thin. Yeah, and also another gorgeous cover.
2: Yes. Covers to, you know, I know it's shallow of us, <laughs> so all very well, so we're not going to eat Wagyu beef every night of the week, but give me a good cover any day of the week. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's part of, it's like when we used to collect records, isn't it? You know, and you'd go to the record shop and you'd look at the covers of the new whatevers, you know, Skyhooks living in the 70s, great cover. And it does influence your buying choice to some extent if, you don't, if you're new to an artist, just yeah, particularly. Yeah. Oh, what are, you know, great covers like Dark Side of the Moon and stuff like that. So, yeah, sorry,
0: I'm a bit of a cover nerd. <laughs> oh, no, I agree with you totally. Now, we've got to um, wind up because, of course, we talk. <laughs> we, we overdid <laughs> it, but that was expected. Congratulations, the dressmaker of yarandara Prison. I really think it's it's beautifully told story. It's quite unique, and uh, I think everyone's going to be talking about it shortly.
2: Oh, good. Maybe someone else can jump on your on your podcast and, and <laughs> talk to, about my book. I'll, I'll hey, speak to Emily.
0: Emily. <laughs> <Susan>. <laughs> right. Thank you so much, Meredith. Thank you. For Thanks your time. so much for having me, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on
1: Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. For free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.